Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Hi, I'm Ellen Trackman. I'm an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law, and I'm here with Jennifer White. Jen, tell us about yourself. It's been a while. I was going to say, is it me? I get to tell about myself or you get to tell about me? Oh, okay. I, I, I own She's a surrogacy. My sister. Some people forget that we do mention that frequently, but Jen and I yeah. are sisters. Mm-hmm. We are. And people are still surprised. I'm, every time I mention it, they're still surprised. I'm like, yes, it really is In true. In a good way? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I refuse to pass judgment on that one. And actually, I was at an event recently and somebody from across the room said, Oh, I thought you were Ellen. And I'm like, Ellen's not even here. <laughs> Flattering for me. I like it. Right. Nice. Right. Um, but yeah, so besides being your sister, I do um, also am the, the general manager. I don't know. What, what did you call me? I don't know. The grand poobah of a surrogacy <laughs> matching program. Your majesty. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. Anyway. But yeah, so I have a surrogacy matching program. And yeah, so I get to spend my time doing that. And it's super fun and rewarding. Um, but when I get to do all these rewarding things, you know, I, I don't ever feel like I'm missing out because I get to be part of all of that. What part of your life, Ellen, is there something that you have a, a fear of missing out or you feel like you've missed out on? Yes, there is something that I definitely missed out on. And it was this podcast recording. Uh, I forget. I think I was at a conference when you were scheduling had to happen. And unfortunately, the timing just didn't work out great. So you were on your own for the interview. So I am. Uh, super bummed to have been part of it, but I um, know you did an amazing job and you didn't even have to because our guest was incredible. She was incredible. Like it's not on my strength. It's totally on her. So we're very excited for you to listen. I am here this week with Dr. Eve Feinberg. She is the medical director at Northwestern Medicine. Uh, Am I correct? Did I get that right? I make sure I get titles right always. Yep. Perfect. Yeah, we changed our name though, so it's Northwestern Medicine Center for Fertility and Reproductive Medicine. We got this like center designation that our chair really likes us to use. Just yeah, FYI. no, that's a good thing. Yeah, no, and it's it's just a really big mouthful of a title. Too. <laughs> it is. At least people can still find you in Northwestern Medicine, but we, we'll keep going with the center for, but we'll do all that. Um, but. Also, and the reason you and I first crossed paths, I'm going to cringe as I say this almost exactly two years ago, um, is because you were on the task force at ASRM regarding COVID-19. So we'll dive in and talk about that in a little bit. But I mean, I think that's a huge portion of like why a lot of people may know your name right now. (laughs) Um, But first, if you don't mind, test start off and tell us about yourself and if you don't mind you know kind of like your own journey and what's brought you to being a doctor and brought you to this part of this field of medicine first thank you so much for having me i'm really honored to be here um I love what I do and I wear a bunch of different hats. So I think very generically, I wanted to be a doctor because I always had this desire to help people. And I think it became really apparent when I was in medical school that women's health and reproductive medicine was just something that was profoundly impactful to women. And I remember sitting on the psych ward one day interviewing this really sweet 80-year-old woman who couldn't tell me 
what day it was. She couldn't tell me what the temperature was or what the season was, but she recounted each and every one of her six deliveries scene by scene. Um, the physician who delivered her, the birth weight of her children, the cesarean section, the vaginal delivery. And despite the fact that she really didn't have any other memory, that was just the most profound memory for her. And I think it crystallized at that moment that if I am going to dedicate my life to something, I wanted to dedicate my life to something that was important to people. And it was just this aha moment in the middle of a dreary winter day in Chicago on the psychiatry ward that I was going to be an obstetrician gynecologist. And it really wasn't until residency that I decided that I wanted to be a reproductive endocrinologist. And I was the type of resident who went through all the different rotations thinking, maybe I'll be an oncologist or maybe I'll be a maternal fetal medicine specialist. But I think that there was just something so compelling about the infertility patients that really resonated that I was driven to that field. These were patients that were doggedly determined to help themselves and they would, they were compliant, they would do anything. They were incredibly um, just heartfelt in their desire to become parents. And it was a stark contrast to some of the other patients that we were working with and delivering that it just really spoke to me. And so I When I graduated residency, I did my residency at Northwestern, and I went off to the National Institutes of Health and pursued a three-year fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, and it was a phenomenal place to do fellowship. We ran the fellowship, or we ran the IVF program for the U.S. military, and so we took care of service members. Yeah. I'm I'm a military dependent, so that's what I'm always like, ooh, that's exciting. (laughs) It was eye-opening. I had had no military experience in my entire youth. I really didn't know anyone who was in the military, and I was all of a sudden placed into this world that was so foreign, but filled with the most incredible people. Um, Military doctors are just like no other, and the patients are amazing. Um, And it was a very unique flavor of reproductive medicine. We took care of a lot of soldiers who had become dismembered. They had reproductive difficulties because of war uh, injury. And it was just a whole different, it was a whole different way to practice REI. And it was, it was incredible. And then I finished my fellowship. I am originally from Chicago, as is my husband, and we moved back to Chicago to be closer to our family. And I was initially, I spent nine years in private practice. And during that time, I did a lot of, again, I wore a lot of hats. I started a not-for-profit that grants infertility treatment to individuals and couples. I had a teaching appointment at the University of Chicago, so I was able to mentor medical students and residents, which was an area that I was just really passionate about. And then after nine years in private practice, I was recruited to come back and join the faculty at Northwestern. And I've been here since 2016. And I serve as the REI Fellowship Program Director, which is just one of the greatest joys of my career to date. And so I spend my time in clinical practice, in teaching, running the fellowship program, working with the residents and working with the Northwestern medical students. I 
running not for profit. I am a wife do, and a mom. Do you to sleep? Three kids. I was going to say, do you sleep? <laughs> I do sleep. I think sleep is important, but I have lately been binge watching a variety of shows, <laughs> so, which is severely interfering with my ability to sleep. So I think I have a really diverse career and I really love what I get to do. I think it's, it is a joy and a privilege. And I think my latest role on the ASRM COVID-19 task force was, it was a challenge for many, it was a challenge for many reasons. Yeah, I I can imagine. I mean, I know from the outsider perspective, I I know from your perspective, I'm, I'm sure it was very different from your perspective, right? From, from us, who were dealing with trying to figure out what in the world was going on, which you also were, right? But then you're putting out these pronouncements to people as to what what best what best practices were about something that none of us knew about yet, right? And I'm certain you had to deal with probably very big emotions from a lot of people. Um, I I can only imagine. I I remember even in that moment thinking how difficult your job is and was because. It, you, you could never make anybody happy in, in what you were saying. You were trying so hard to protect people and people were scared, which then made them lash out and angry. So I, I'd love to hear about how the, and, and I will say, we, I mentioned this off air, um, that we're, we're recording this the day after the final task force recommendation was released. So you're, you're done with that portion, right? Is that, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> so you can do like well, a whole from start to end narrative on how that felt. <laughs> there there actually was a sentence that we put into the last task force update stating that the task force will reconvene on an ad hoc basis <laughs> if yeah, needed. I that. <laughs> but officially signing off, which I think was just a momentous event in my professional life. And I, I really want to give a shout out to Catherine Rakowski, who was the fearless leader of our task force over the last two years. And she is a phenomenal leader, the voice of reason, um, passionate about the field of reproductive medicine and highly ethical. And I think that the actions of the task force and the statements that we made first and foremost were data-driven with the caveat that at times there were a paucity of data And where there were a paucity of data, we tried to use biologic plausibility, common sense, and community values over individual values, which is something that is really one of the critical critical tenets of pandemic ethics. And so I think as somebody who was invited to join this task force, we were really charged with becoming experts in something to which previously didn't exist, we had no data, and didn't really have epidemiologic background and training. And I think like everything else that I always joke that I set my mind to, I don't, I don't go after things with 50% effort. Like I, I really do give things a hundred percent effort. And so I read every piece of literature I could get my hands on. ASRM had a fantastic librarian who would collate every week we would get a literature search of all of the new articles that were coming out about COVID early on in the pandemic as vaccine development was happening. I sat in on some of the phone calls with Pfizer and the CDC, and there were multiple avenues that we used to educate ourselves in every arena from vaccine to learning epidemiologic terms like 
are not and understanding the ethical principles. There's an entire document on pandemic ethical care and how to deliver care in times of pandemic. And there's a whole different set of standards that applies to medicine in times of a pandemic. And so we tried to pull from all of those different sources to create experts within the task force. And then we would divide and conquer at every task force meeting on who would take the charge on writing which segment. And we would have individual writers, and then we would come back together and reconvene discuss our recommendations and move forward from that part. And without question, the initial recommendations were met with a lot of emotion, I think is a good yeah. way to put it. And I think they really did come from this earnest desire to prevent the spread of transmission, to keep people safe in times of uncertainty. And we knew that this was a difficult recommendation and a difficult decision, but we really felt that it was in line with every other major medical society that was out there and knew also that the recommendation to pause fertility care was going to be a very temporary recommendation in order to divert PPE to the front line, in order to try to reduce the spread of disease and try to get a better handle on where the pandemic was going. But it was challenging. I mean, we received many emails that were angry, threatening, derogatory. Um, Many of them were difficult to read, were called um, lots of different names. And interestingly, the women of the task force received a lot of hate mail from other women, while the men on the task force did not receive such hate mail. Interesting. Huh, that's fascinating. I I mean, I'm definitely interested to hear, I mean, as much detail as you want to go into and talk through, like, how you guys formed, because I know it was very difficult at the beginning to figure out whether or not, you know, and just because of scarcity of data, right, um, on whether it was safe to vaccinate people who were either pregnant or trying to conceive. And And I know now the recommendation is to do so. So how did you come to that? place without having that data first? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think um, first and foremost, I think it was a huge mistake not to include pregnant people in the clinical trials. And I think if there's one lesson that has come away from this that all major agencies realize is that in pandemic times, there is something called the common rule, which prevents Um, vulnerable patients from being included in clinical trials, that in times of pandemic, that has to be amended to be able to include those vulnerable populations, because the harm was more, um, the harm was much more profound than I think was anticipated as we learned that the effects of the virus in pregnant patients was, um, was devastating. Um, And especially, and I know this is more into your area, but especially there was a case of a gestational carrier who lost, who lost a baby for an intended parent. And that was really where some of the recommendations or mandates, suggested mandates for vaccination of GCs came into play. But in the very beginning, one lost her life as a COVID, as COVID complications as well. Yes. And it was, it was my very own patient who's, um, whose gestational carrier lost a baby too. So oh, it hit incredibly really close, close to home. And this yeah. was a couple that I had cared for for many, many years. And it was, it was devastating. Um, 
But I think the initial recommendation for vaccination, and ASRM was actually the first organization to come out with a bold recommendation to say that we should be recommending vaccination for pregnant people and those who are intending to become pregnant. And the other organizations kind of took these lighter, softer stances that there should be informed decision-making and shared decision-making and conversations with your healthcare providers about vaccination. But our recommendation really came from the idea of biologic plausibility, knowing how an mRNA vaccine works, knowing that the virus does not enter into, or the message doesn't enter into the host cells, knowing that um, that the it's very short-lived in terms of the vaccine itself, and the vaccine is really just the machinery to get the body to ramp up its production of spike protein, that knowing that biologic plausibility would really have no impact on pregnancy or the fetus, we felt very comfortable making that initial recommendation. And it was also born out of data that were emerging showing the hazards of COVID and pregnancy. And so it was really this risk-benefit equation saying that we know that COVID is especially bad in the pregnant patient. And while we don't have data on the negative effects of the vaccine, it's very biologically plausible that there will be no effect of the vaccine that is ill towards the fetus, the mother, the placenta. And the risk-benefit equation is very clear, showing that the known risks of COVID far outweigh the theoretical risks of vaccination. Yeah, so that was a, a big, heavy decision, and I think I think it was generally well received. I mean, I definitely still. I mean, obviously, and because I do work in the surrogacy world, it's a very. Uh, I, I hear both sides of that argument. I I know from the the agency side of things, we were generally pretty pretty supportive of that. We'll just say we do not want to put any of our people in risk. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, but, we felt that that was the look to be frank. We felt that that was the lowest of low hanging fruit. Is that a gestational carrier is hired specifically for the purpose of ensuring a healthy delivery. And so what better way or what lower fruit can you um, can you reach for than the one population of patients whose sole job is on a you know on a paid basis to help to ensure the health of um, of the baby. And the task not force okay. some are altruistic, but it's still a choice. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. But that's their role. Like this is a this is a job that they are knowingly taking on in order to help another couple. And so I think that it, with my patient whose GC was not vaccinated, it was just simply too early. Um, the transfer was in January uh, prior to the vaccine becoming more widely available. Um, and so I think that as those data, particularly by, let's say, like April, May of 2020, uh, 2021, my years are confused. I know, right? Where they're all gone. <laughs> right. That at that point, I think there's really no excuse in that particular population of patients. Um, yeah. Quite honestly, I think many of us felt on the task force that, that, all patients undergoing infertility treatment should be vaccinated or should there 
clinics may have mandates, but that did not go over well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say early on, it was hard to get access to a vaccine. For I mean, now you can walk up any, you just rock up anywhere and get one if you if you chose to. So there's not much excuse in that way. But uh, at the beginning, especially if you were in a younger population, which is what a gestational carrier would be, um, is that it was hard to like to get access to, to a vaccine until really probably last summer was when they started mm-hmm. to become much more widely available. Yeah, no question about that. And going back to your earlier point about sleep, I do think sleep is important. And I lost a lot of sleep yeah. <laughs> worrying about worrying about these recommendations or thinking about the gravity of what we are, what we were proposing. Well, yeah, and I'm sure just in your levels. practice, you were making also having to make big decisions about how you were going to treat going forward. And so you were you were dealing with helping the national consciousness and also dealing with your own private clinic, you know, I mean, your, your clinic's consciousness as well For and what sure. they were doing. You know, so you sure. had a and dual wish, role. Yeah, and I wish I could say that was over. But just yesterday, I had to call a patient of mine whose egg retrieval we canceled because she's COVID positive. Mm-hmm. And, and I so was about to is, ask is what has changed and what has continues to change or what, it, what changes were made that you continue to keep? And that, that sounds like one of them, obviously. Yeah. And I think it's debatable, especially as, as the newer variants are becoming less severe in the severity of disease. Um, I, I really question the utility of a lot of what we're doing and, and when those rules and regulations are going to change. I think what, what really has been the most striking change is some of the differences by state, <laughs> not just right. in mask mandates, but also in the Department of Public Health and the regulations that ensue. And I think one thing that this pandemic really showed me as an American is maybe we're really not the United States of America. And I think at times we feel like we are, I have felt like I live in one of 50 countries that shares a name. But I I went to Texas a few weeks ago. And when we touched down in Texas, the crew said, welcome to Texas where there's no where there's no coronavirus. (laughs) Like the plane started cheering. What? This doesn't exist in Texas, huh? It doesn't. We were told when we touched down, they said the, um, where COVID doesn't exist, you know, and they were tongue in cheek and sure, talking sure, sure. about it. But in my entire week stay in Dallas, I, I didn't see a single mask. And in Illinois, I think people are still pretty conservative and people are pretty masked. And I know within our own hospital system, we are still doing COVID testing on a regular basis. We COVID test every single patient at the beginning of their IVF cycle. We test every single patient on the day prior to egg retrieval. And if they are COVID positive, they get canceled. And if they have had COVID um, within 90 days, we don't test and we put them through a COVID clearance program. But then once somebody has COVID, we don't, um, they don't get general anesthesia um, for either uh, 30 or 90 days, depending on the severity of disease. If somebody was intubated in the ICU, then they don't get anesthesia for 90 days. And if somebody just had mild um, symptomatic COVID, it's 30 days. But those, yes, the task force has signed off, but the effects of COVID and the ongoing 
prevalence of COVID and incidence of COVID is still increasing um, slowly yeah. but surely right now. And hopefully it will just become endemic and not pandemic and will probably be something that we live with for a long time. But my hope is that we manage it differently moving forward. Sure. Did it change? And this one is one that's fascinating to me because I'm always in actually we both were both on the access to care group at, and I know you were the the chair of it at ASRM. Um, the access to care changed a lot, and in a good way for some things. Like I, I personally, like I, I moved across the country during the pandemic because you know what? Why would you not move during a pandemic? Right? Totally makes sense. <laughs> but one of the big things for me was I was dealing with a medical issue, and access to care and trying to find a new provider was extraordinarily difficult. And the advent of really telehealth becoming a very important part of people's practices was incredibly good for me personally, and I know for a lot of people. So uh, how did that affect your practice? I mean, I know there's obviously some things that you have to be in person for. You can't do a retrieval via telehealth. But but what did you see in, in that and in helping people access care or feel better about their care throughout the, throughout the pandemic? Yeah, the entire way we practice reproductive medicine has been changed, and I suspect that a lot of it is forever changed. We went from seeing patients 100% in person to now and still now, um, we still do nearly 100% of our new patient visits and return visits via telehealth. So I have two full days of telehealth clinic. I have two in-person days, but I have two full days eight to five o'clock telehealth on Mondays and Wednesdays. And a few months back before the Delta surge, when when the pandemic was at a low, um, we tried to go back to in-person visits and patients did not want it. We had a lot of pushback from our patients stating they really enjoyed telehealth. They felt like it increased the efficiency of care. It was better able to suit their needs to be at work and just able to take a short break and not have to deal with driving to an appointment, parking in downtown Chicago. And they really feel that human connection is present through telehealth. And I, I agree in many ways. I don't know where it's going to go. And I'm, I'm curious to see where it's going to go. I think that telehealth has a lot of benefit for access to care, both good and bad. I was lamenting with a colleague in Georgia last week who texted me to say that um, she saw the same patient I had seen the day before, and the patient was remarking how similar our recommendations were, and we were just chuckling, like whoever would have thought that we would have shared patients across Across multiple state lines. Yeah. 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 So, in one on one hand, I do think that patients have done a lot more doctor shopping, and I'm seeing a lot more third and fourth opinions of patients who are already engaged in treatment, and they just want another opinion because it's easy. Uh, and admittedly, some of that is exhausting and frustrating because sure. I do spend a lot of time before I meet with a patient carefully reviewing their records and you know, if you had an embryo transfer a week ago and you don't know whether or not you're pregnant, it feels a little bit tiring to go through your previous 10 IVF cycles and come up with a plan for the 11th when you may be pregnant. And right, so when you haven't finished the 10th, yeah. Correct, correct. Um, and so there's there's a lot of extra 
visits and a, a lot less follow through, I think, in some ways. But I also do think that telehealth has really broadened. We care for patients in Chicago. We see a lot of patients from Indiana. We see a lot of patients from Michigan because of the surrogacy laws in Michigan. And we see a lot of patients from Wisconsin. And it really has made it so much easier for those patients who normally would drive in for face-to-face consultations to be able to just pop on a quick video chat and make a plan. Yeah, it did help me across country. I did. I will laugh though that I also had major knee surgery right before the pandemic, and I could not go back in for my final recheck oh, no. <laughs> afterwards. And so I had to be on telehealth. And he's like, "I have to see you walk before I can release you from care." And so I'm in my little tiny office on my little tiny video camera, trying to like walk in front of the doctor. <laughs> I know. It was one of I the know. most absurd things I've ever done. I was like, "I swear I'm fine. I promise." <laughs> I know. I will never forget seeing a patient who had infertility and was told she had a small uterus and I was asking her about puberty development and she lifts up her shirt and I'm like, no, 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 please do not. No, I don't want to see that. No, no. I don't want to see breast development on telehealth like ever. (laughs) All right. So some drawbacks to telehealth. (laughs) You might miss some body language there on what your intent is. Right. I mean, I was really just asking more about the timing of the puberty sequence. Like, how old were you? Was breast development normal? Right. Um, I wasn't really asking to to, to see, see everything. <laughs> right? no. That's funny. So but, you are also a prolific writer, I will say. Um, for anyone who can go, who has access to ASRM's uh, data banks and for fertility and sterility. going back, your name just shows up over and over and over again. And I definitely, there were a couple of things that that I'd love to just like, you you wrote an opinion piece, and I believe it was was supposed to be an opinion piece about the My Body Whose Choice. And I know you were definitely talking, it was not, it started off talking a little bit about COVID and vaccines. Would you mind addressing that article and and talking about that? Because especially because you talked about Texas earlier too. So yay, we're going to talk about all these things. Yeah, so I, um, I'm i really proud of that piece. And I just want to give a shout out to Melly Montoya, who is the first author on that piece. And Melly was a medical student at Northwestern, and I was one of her mentors. And we have continued ongoing conversation about reproductive choice and how Melly is entering into family planning fellowship and how REI, people often assume that reproductive endocrinologists um, are the opposite end of the family planning spectrum. And I I really disagree with that. And I think that we're we're on the same spectrum. I also sit on the National Medical Committee for Planned Parenthood. I'm the sole REI on that committee. And I am really passionate about reproductive choice Mm -hmm. and have been for a very long time. And so that piece, I think, was really intended as, um, I don't want to say a wake-up call, but I think more of a call to action on listen colleagues, what's happening in Texas and now what's happening in Oklahoma and what's happening on a national level with, um, with this legislation is going to impact 
our ability to practice reproductive medicine as we know it. And here's why. Here are the, here is the slippery slope of personhood specifically. And here are very specific examples as to how this may affect what we do. And predating that piece was a piece that the two editors in chief of Fertility and Sterility and I wrote um, with Craig Niederberger and Tony Pelletier when Amy Coney Barrett was um, was up for Supreme Court justice. And we all know how that turned out, but right. it was really the first time that a medical journal had taken a political stance. And I think it's really her her anti-choice philosophy that is quite honestly dangerous for women's health. And so I feel compelled as an REI and as somebody who actually loves to write to try to impart that voice from the lens of reproductive choice and how abortion legislation affects reproductive medicine. And I think that's the part that people don't understand. And interestingly, I come from a household of two um, very conservative parents who are anti-abortion. And when I try to explain to them through the lens of reproductive medicine, I think my mom especially has changed how she views the, the legislation. Interesting. Interesting. And I mean, I loved, I was struck just like even in the first several paragraphs that you point out that you're using the same piece of rhetoric to defend two completely opposite stances. You know, that Correct. people are saying, my body, my choice, I don't have to get a vaccine. And it's my body, my choice, but I'm going to control you from whether you make a choice regarding whether you carry a child or not. And yeah. it's the same piece of rhetoric, but it's the, used by to defend different stances. And it's it's the same people. And that's the part that struck me as being mm-hmm. so offensive is it's the very same people that want to control what happens in my office and my operating room and my hospital system on very personal life choices that then are refusing treatment that arguably benefits the community and they're claiming personal autonomy as the driving principle of that. And so it's like, pick your poison, either have the stance that personal autonomy rules and that's the guiding principle. And if you look at abortion from a personal autonomy standpoint, that's the number one ethical principle at play is that personal autonomy. Whereas with masking and with vaccines, it sure, there's an element of personal autonomy, but again, going back to what I was saying about pandemic standards of care, in pandemic standards, the principal guiding force should actually be community health. And if you're going to play the autonomy rules card, then I would hope that you would be consistent in that um, in that rhetoric. And I think what is so ironic about this and so painful to watch is that politically at the exact same time, it's the exact same people that are arguing for personal autonomy, but yet they're also arguing anti-abortion and anti-reproductive choice, which is the pinnacle of personal autonomy. Right, right. I It will be very interesting to see what happens this summer. I'm just, I will just, just leave it there. We'll see what happens. <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, I hear you. 
one other direction I want to go, because I, I suspect we could keep following these things and talk all day. Um, you also, and I, I mentioned this to you again before we start talking, that I have a very soft spot fascination with talking about mosaicism and embryos, which even, my gosh, it, the I think the thought process has changed so much so quickly. It's a very fascinating topic to look into. Um, because even five-ish years ago, if somebody had a mosaic embryo, it was like, nope, too bad, that's it, done. It's unheard of to transfer a mosaic embryo. But now there's attitudes are really changing. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on mosaics. We've even changed. I've personally changed my attitude on it and my practice, not just my personal practice, but our group's practice on it. And our practice has, in fact, started transferring mosaic embryos. And I have my first two patients that are pregnant from mosaic embryo transfers mm. who have had amniocentesis showing euploid ongoing pregnancy. So I, I really... Amazing we really have changed how we think about it. But for me, um, I'm also an editorial editor for Fertility and Sterility. And one of the things that we do in that role as editorial editor is we put together some of the editorial content for the journal. And so when I first was asked to become an editorial editor, my first, uh, my first task was to put together a views and reviews. And these are comprehensive review articles with a view portion that the editorial editor writes while the other authors write the review portion. And you're really tasked with picking a controversial topic. And so mine was mosaic embryo transfer because prior to that views and reviews, our practice was not transferring mosaic embryos. And I really wanted to take it upon myself to learn everything that I could and speak with the experts in the field and learn what other people were doing to see whether or not we at Northwestern should change how we practice. And so I had invited some of the experts in the field to talk about their experience, their thought process with it, and their interpretation of what mosaic means and how do they counsel patients in their practice about it. And I, I really loved Nathan Treff and Diego Marin were one of the authors and they talked about mosaic embryo or mosaic embryos kind of in air quotes around the word mosaic that it may really be a bioinformatics issue that the embryo itself may not be mosaic, but the interpretation of copy number may be altered and it may be an issue with some of the way that the data are outputted or inputted. And it may just be a signal and not an actual mosaicism issue with the embryo. And then one of the other articles in that series was written by Jamie Griffo with one of the genetic counselors from NYU. And he really challenged the recommendation put forth that every patient should have genetic counseling with a mosaic embryo transfer and kind of said, we know that regular embryo transfer will lead to mosaicism probably at a much higher rate than then the opposite, then mosaic embryo transfer will lead to mosaic embryos. So oh, if we're going to talk genetic counseling, maybe every single person who does PGT should have right. genetic counseling, which I thought was a fabulously brilliant point. And then the other article in that piece was by Manuel Viatti and colleagues who have a lot of data on mosaic embryo transfer and really have shown that while pregnancy rates are probably about half what a euploid embryo is, 
they're still there and they lead to healthy live birth in the overwhelming majority of situations. And I think to date, there have been maybe two reports of mosaic fetuses arising from well over a thousand mosaic embryo transfers. And we've had many more mosaic fetuses arise from euploid embryo transfer or from um, medically unassisted conception. And so I, I do think the tide is changing. It's something I've witnessed in my own practice. I think a year ago, I would have said no way. Um, we were saying no, that we won't transfer them, that the risk is too high. And we are now actively transferring mosaic embryos and we have seen some good results with it. Does your risk assessment change if somebody is transferring to themselves versus to a gestational carrier, just out of absolute curiosity? So we actually won't transfer a mosaic embryo to a GC. Okay. And <laughs> we will I, only do that. That's why I said it was we total curiosity. Yeah. yeah. We, at, at this point in time in our practice, um, we will only ask the patient to incur that risk to themselves. Um, yeah. And again, sort of speaking to, we want to, we want to minimize the risk to a gestational carrier. And we talk about this for those, uh, you may or may not have listeners that listen to my podcast, which is uh, Fertility and Sterility on Air. We talk about the utility of PGT all the time. And I battle Kurt Barnhart, our brilliant editor-in-chief on this, that I actually think for gestational carriers, they should all have PGT because we don't want to put a GC into a discussion about termination for like a trisomy 21 when that's a preventable situation. But that's admittedly controversial. Um, and he and I don't see eye to eye on that. Interesting. I say, do you mind, and this is just my own personal, I always love to educate people on this and I'm going to, I'm going to throw a softball at you. How effective is PGT? How, how conclusive is that to make sure that people are definitely getting a, a wonderful embryo? I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a it's softball not. at you here. <laughs> yeah, no. So PGT is not a perfect science. What we know about PGT, and I can say this with, um, with a lot of confidence, that the embryos that are read as aneuploidy will not progress to having a live birth. Um, and Richard Scott has demonstrated that beautifully in a lot of the data that's emerged from his program, as have many others. So I feel very comfortable saying that if an embryo is aneuploid, we do not transfer it, and I am perfectly comfortable discarding those embryos. If an embryo is euploid, I think at best we can say that it's 60 to 70% likely to lead to a live birth. Um, and why isn't it a hundred percent? And I think that's, and I, I say this all the time, I think that's the holy grail of reproductive endocrinology and infertility is figuring out how we get a hundred percent implantation rate of each euploid embryo. And we are far from that. And I think it has to do with the fact that chromosomes are a part of the equation, but they're certainly not the whole equation in terms of the embryo and embryonic competence and also the endometrium and the maternal environment and into which we're transferring. And there's probably some element of sperm and um, epigenetics at play as well that we can't see just by looking at chromosome copy number. Yeah, no, it's all amazingly fascinating. I just, I definitely have had people come to me. They're like, it's okay. We have PG, we have PGT tested embryos. They're, they're completely fine. We don't have to have the conversation about termination. And I, every time I just put my head in my hands and I'm like, all right, let's, let's, let's go backwards. Yeah. <laughs> I am not a it doctor, but we're going to, yeah. Right. 
Right. It doesn't negate the it doesn't negate the need for that conversation, but I think it's it is a strategy to greatly risk reduce the likelihood of having an ongoing aneuploidy. It's not a perfect science, but I think especially in this scenario of a gestational carrier, to me, and this is not in accordance with ASRM recommendations, I just want to be very clear on that. Um, to me, couples who are using a gestational carrier, you want to do everything that is within reach to optimize the likelihood of having a healthy baby. And I think to minimize any potential for chaos or any potential for disagreement with the with the gestational carrier between the GC and the IPs. And so PGT in E. Feinberg's world of indications for PGT, using a gestational carrier is um, is an indication for PGT. Yeah, we say all the time that the the point of using a gestational carrier is we're trying to reduce every possible risk we can to make the highest chance of successful outcome for everybody. Hence, hence the COVID vaccine recommendation. Right? (laughs) It all ties together. So see, you brought it right right around in a nice little circle. So any, any parting thoughts? What are, what's the next new thing we should be looking for coming up here? Um, I I mean, I think that, um, I think that one of the most exciting things about our field is that it is constantly changing. And I, I graduated my fellowship in 2007. And in that time, we have evolved from egg freezing being experimental, in vitro maturation being experimental, the use of vitrification, the use of blastocyst transfer, vitrification. Um, the progress has been unbelievable. We've gone from um, fish to next generation sequencing with a few other iterations in between. And I think that the one thing that's certain about the field is that it will evolve and it will change. And I, I love that. I can't imagine practicing the same medicine year after year. I love the fact that our recommendations are constantly evolving. I love being able to keep my finger on the pulse of the field of reproductive medicine through, I think, a lot of the different organizations that I have served and volunteer to be a part of. Um, I think it keeps it exciting and interesting and collaborative and fun. And I, I really think it's the best and most exciting field of medicine that there is. Love it. That's like inspiring way to sign off. Thank you so much. I mean, like we, I, I think you're gonna have to come back, and we're gonna have to talk in the future about the what what has changed since we last. We'll, we'll just have to wait a couple of years here in between. See see what the excitement is, and hopefully let you get some rest too <laughs> from COVID. Right? I think sleep. I think sleep is important. Um, I'm actually more excited for travel after COVID and have a bunch of really fun trips planned. So I, I think we I all am, do, right? <laughs> yeah. So. I am I am really hoping that this is COVID in the rear view mirror and let's let's start living again. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
Thank you, Dr. Feinberg, for making time to do this interview, even though it wasn't a time that lined up with my schedule. So sorry again. <laughs> it's you that had the problem, not I know, her. 100%. <laughs> it was definitely me that was the problem. I got it. Yeah. No, it was incredible. And I mean, she is, especially during the COVID era, she was one of those like heroes that I looked up to of like, how are you managing to do everything during all of this? Because she does so, so so much with so much grace so it was it was really i i enjoyed talking to her um but we we also enjoy talking to all of you out there so if you want to give us a call and leave us a message at 303-997-1903 we would so appreciate it and also if you want to go talk to us on our facebook group and speaking right. of heroes, those that yeah. um, take the few minutes to rate us and to leave reviews, <gasps> yes. those are heroes to us. Yes, absolutely. Um, but even without, we still appreciate you being here. So thank you to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, to Melissa, and to Janelle, uh, everyone who makes us sound sound good. I mean, do I say incredible? I don't. I don't know. I feel like I'm bigging myself. They do up, their best with what they're they given. They do exactly. Thanks for those who do the best with what they are given. We appreciate you guys so much, and of course, as always, we appreciate you for being here with us every week. Thanks so much. <laughs>